Did we already talk about your high school math teacher? Did I ask you that question already? Ed Coos? Yeah. No, we didn't talk about the Coos. My ninth grade math teacher was a guy named Ted Coos. I transferred into this private high school, uh, and I was behind in math. Uh, Mr. Coos decided I was uh, pretty good at math, and on along about March or April, he said, you know, you might be able to catch up and do Algebra two in the next three months, and then you'd be all caught up. So I said, yes, let's do that. So I, I did Algebra one and Algebra two essentially at the same time. And then the next year, I just got carried away, and I took uh, geometry, pre-calculus, and calculus all at the same time. Uh, that was 10th grade. And then I was out of math classes at my high school. So the last two years, I went to a local college, Lawrence Technological University, and I took math classes up there. Look at the role that teacher, Mr. Coos, played in your life. Do you think you would have become the CEO of Microsoft, become the owner of the LA Clippers, and be sitting here today if it wasn't for him? No. No chance. That is Steve Ballmer, and his experience as a kid is really the perfect illustration of the importance of teachers and the power of an effective educational system. But how effective are U.S. schools today? On this episode of Numbers Geek, we will explore that question by looking at the numbers behind K-12 public education with our resident Numbers Geek, Steve Ballmer. So my first observation is, whoa! We'll test Steve's knowledge of algebra with a pop quiz. Write it down. Two times T plus S equals... And we'll give you a chance to win a Numbers Geek shirt if you can solve the problem too. Thank you for playing our game today (laughs) called Eighth Grade Math. And guess who I found? My name is Ted Coos. That's right. We will get the rest of the story from Steve's math teacher, Mr. Coos. From GeekWire and USA Facts, it's Numbers Geek with Steve Ballmer. The numbers can set you free. I'm GeekWire editor Todd Bishop. Stick around. I promise you have never had this much fun with numbers at school. All right, let's jump into the numbers behind education. We're talking on this episode with Steve Ballmer. He's the former Microsoft CEO, owner of the LA Clippers, and the founder of USA Facts. That is a nonpartisan, not-for-profit civic data initiative that's GeekWire's partner on NumbersGeek. It always helps to start with a reminder of why people should care about this topic. I think almost everybody in the country would recognize that education is a propellant of success. Now, education is a couple things. Learning is super important. It makes you better able to do things. But in a way, education is also a measure of how functional your situation is in life. You know, a lot of kids are perfectly smart and able to do the work, but if their parents don't have an opportunity to read to them when they're young, if they're in situations where maybe they have to take care of a baby brother or baby sister, can't get to school on time, if it's unsafe because of gangs, et cetera, to get to school, there's a lot of reasons why people don't achieve in school that reflect not on them per se, not on the teachers per se, but reflect on difficult family circumstances. But either way you cut it, education is the marker of success and the propellant of future success. In every sense, it's close to my heart. I received a great education. I came from a family where people had a lot less education. Uh, We work uh, philanthropically to try to create situations where kids 
can achieve. Education is a super important part of that. So I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this with you today. All right. So before we get to the outcomes, things like test scores and graduation rates, let's start with what we spend on education, the inputs. So here is the first key number to know, 15%. That is total education spending as a percentage of all federal, state, and local government spending. Now, the underlying number is $850 billion a year in education spending on K-12 and higher education. And total government spending is $5.7 trillion. But those numbers can be very difficult to wrap your mind around. So the key thing to remember is education spending is 15% of total government spending. Now, this is as of 2015. And that's an example of a shortcoming in government data. We're effectively two or three years behind here. I mean, it really is a a bummer that government doesn't turn around its uh, numbers in combination, not just federal, but we need state and local if we're going to look at education. Anyway, let's base off 2015. The story's not going to change dramatically in the last two years. Total government spending in the United States is $5.7 trillion. Now, that's state, local, and federal spending. What's interesting is that education spending as a percentage of that overall government spending has stayed relatively consistent over the past few decades. About 15% of spend in the country uh, has been uh, on education, um, and then you can do inflation adjustment and, and the like, uh, which is probably even more important, but it does express the priority of education has stayed strong um, basically since 1980, where we do our first tracking. Uh, it's one out of every, almost just about one out of every $6 uh, goes to funding and this includes community colleges, higher ed, as well as K-12 through education. So this is interesting. It shows here that about 97%, 97.2% comes from state and local, whereas less than 3% comes from the federal government for overall education funding. How does that change the dynamic when you have that much happening at the state and local level? Probably the key thing to remember is uh, state and local governments are not uh, chartered to run deficits. So, you know, you really have to match additional spending against additional tax revenue. There, you can't do what the, the feds do in order to get this stuff funded. I think that forces harder trade-offs. I mean, if you look at most state budgets, education is a, a big clump. Roads are a big clump. Uh, police and corrections is a big clump. And human services is a big clump. And anything you do here either has to trade off against one another, it has to trade off against new taxes, or you have to make the hard decisions like, are we paying our teachers too much or too little? That'll drive you one way or another. Do we need to increase class size? Those, do we have too much overhead to run a school? Can we shrink the number of janitorial buses, principals? Because that's also drives cost in these schools. It's almost more like running a business where you have to pay much closer attention to the bottom line if you're a state or local government, as opposed to the federal government being able to run more of a deficit. That's right. There's a lot more pressure on that uh, at the state and local level. Uh, it's also true that a lot of the money state governments take in, they don't have flexibility to use uh, on whatever makes sense. Most of the time, for example, gasoline tax gets reinvested into roads and infrastructure. 
So the flexibility with property tax, sales tax, uh, state income taxes, the flexibility to really fund education, uh, you got to make hard trade-offs. Okay, so that leads to our next number, 16. That's the average number of students per teacher in U.S. public K-12 through schools, the student-teacher ratio. Now, that ratio, 16 to 1, is actually lower than many people expect because student-teacher ratio is not the same as class size. This gets confused all the time, as I learned when we took Numbers Geek on the street. Student-teacher ratio, so the average number of students for every teacher in U.S. public schools, what would you guess that number is? I would say probably like 23. Uh, maybe 35 to 1. I'm guessing like uh, like 30 per teacher maybe. Uh, maybe one teacher to 35 students. 32. People think it's super high too. Would you believe it's only 16.1? Really? Jeez, because I had like 30, 35 in my class. And I went to a private school. So, yeah, it's subtle, but there's a difference between class size and student teacher ratio there. It's in the ballpark, but like say you have a music teacher or a PE teacher, then that's calculated as part of it too. The student teacher ratio is not the same as class size. You can get very small classes and say subjects uh, like Latin or in special education classes. And if you get very small classes someplace, you're going to get very big classes someplace else. So the average is can be misleading. Student-teacher ratio is typically lower than class size, and that's because people like librarians and instructional staff are counted as teachers for purposes of the student-teacher ratio, even if they don't have their own classrooms. But even if they were thinking class size, many of the people I spoke with were still guessing too high in the 30s. And now again here, the government numbers aren't up to date, but Average class size as of the last report is 21.2 students per class in U.S. public elementary schools and 26.8 in high school, whereas, as we said, the current student-teacher ratio is about 16 students per teacher, and that's the number we're going to dig into. If you think about huge changes in student-teacher ratio, they really do drive large, large additional costs. One student, you get one change in the student-teacher ratio, one person, and that'll cost you tens of billions of dollars. So you really want to be right on this. It's the most expensive decision you could make. So the cool thing here from a data perspective is that we can see the trend in student-teacher ratio going back more than half a century. USA Facts collects and reports government data on the student-teacher ratio all the way back to the 50s. The student-teacher ratio was highest in 1956. That year, there were 26.9 students per teacher. Well, old 1956 is the year I was born. Let me run out here to about 19. When I first started sitting in classrooms here in about 61, 62, the number there is still looks like it's about uh, 26 kids uh, when I was a kindergartner. That experience might have worked well in our middle-class neighborhood. Uh, Kids seem to do pretty well. Uh, you can argue that you can get very good results. You can argue also if you go into areas that are poorer, where the kids may need more help, you should have smaller class sizes. So from that peak of around 26 students per teacher in the 1950s, student-teacher ratio dropped into the low 20s and high teens in the 1970s. Then in the 1980s, there was a landmark study in Tennessee. It was called Project Star 
for student-teacher achievement ratio. Here's a clip from WZTV in Nashville that explains. In the 1980s, Tennessee led the way on classroom size research with a report called Project Star. The study found that smaller classroom size is better, especially in early grades. Billions of dollars have been spent around the world to hire more teachers based on the STAR study. So the findings from Project STAR heavily influenced school districts around the country, and the student-teacher ratio dropped further from that point. It reached a low of 15.3 students per teacher in 2009. But many districts were forced to tighten their belts after the recession, and those effects are still being felt today. Here's KXAN-TV in Texas in April of 2018. Thousands gathered in two state capitals today in Colorado and Arizona to push for a big funding increase in education. Teachers in both states say they are not paid enough, and they say the amount of money lawmakers are spending on their students is too low as well. Texas needs to hire 11,000 teachers to return to previous student-to-teacher ratios. Per state law, elementary schools are supposed to have 22 students or less per teacher. Right now, there are 22 classrooms that are over the limit with a waiver. Before funding cuts back in 2011, the district had only two classrooms over the limit. Any thoughts on this news story? Well, what it really says is class sizes are getting bigger. Now, is it getting bigger because there's more specialty classes that have fewer people in it? Are they getting bigger because maybe there's a rebalancing between special education and uh, regular education? I mean, at the end of the day, education cost is going to be driven by the number of students, the student-teacher ratio, and the amount you pay teachers. Unless somebody's going to turn on the printing press and create new dollars, which is very hard to do in this tax environment, uh, that has put pressure on teacher pay. If you will, it sounds like the piper is being paid now, and real choices have to be made between tax increases, uh, student-teacher ratios, class size, and uh, how much we pay our teachers. In fact, in recent years, there's been a decline in average U.S. public school teacher salary. The average salary peaked above $60,000 in 2010, and then it dipped to $58,000 by 2015. Now, this is up from an average salary of $46,500 in 1980 when adjusted for inflation. And these numbers are from the National Center for Education Statistics. You can go to geekwire.com slash numbersgeek for citations and also links to these stats, along with others from this episode, and also check out usafacts.org. So the overall student-teacher ratio for public schools in the U.S. has inched up in general over the past decade, but at 16 students per teacher, it's still near its low point when you look at the full context of the past half century or more. Certainly, people my age, you know, you want to be an old-timer. Well, it was good enough for us in the old days. Why is it not good enough today? Uh, And the difference between 26 and where are we now, about 16 You know, that's a 40% roughly difference. That means, you know, education spend could be down 40%. That's a lot of money. I'm not arguing that that's what should happen. I do think, really thinking through, what are the differential needs kids have? Uh, Are we paying our teachers enough? All of that will have influence. And that's, I think, one of the things that is tough to discuss is you want to make sure you're putting the right resources in the right place. And you say... What are the outcomes? 
All right, we will answer that question after this break. Welcome back to Numbers Geek. This week, we're exploring the numbers behind U.S. education with our resident numbers geek, Steve Ballmer. To set the stage for the rest of our discussion, let's check in with a special guest. It was a great experience teaching Steve, and anytime I can talk about him, I am more than happy to do that. Yes, Ted Coos, Mr. Coos. After Steve told us the story of his high school math teacher, I found him. Mr. Coos was a teacher for two decades, including three years at Detroit Country Day School. That's where he met Steve. Steve came my second year, so he and I were there together for two years. And at Country Day, the normal progression was to take Algebra 1 as an 8th grader. Steve had not taken Algebra 1, but in those two years when we were together, uh, he took Algebra 1, Algebra 2, Geometry, Pre-Calculus, and Calculus. And my third year there, I was taking a night course at a local university, a graduate-level math course, um, and Steve came down and audited that course with me. I took him down when I went to class. So he was behind the other students, as you said. What was it about him or about your method of motivating him that made him want to not only catch up but apparently get ahead? I just think it was his incredible quest uh, and excitement about learning. He just had kind of a spark in his eye, and uh, he just he just couldn't get enough of it. He just lapped it up. From our conversation, I could tell that Mr. Coos loved working with students and being in the classroom, but he ultimately moved on to a different career. He became an actuary before he retired. So I wondered, why did he stop teaching? It was a different time. Uh, so I used to always give brain teasers on the weekends, and I would give them to, to students and say, if you want to do it, that's fine. If you don't want to do it, that's fine, too. And then we, on Monday, they would come in, and we'd spend five or ten minutes going over it. Uh, I left teaching after 20 years because I, I it just wasn't fun anymore. And uh, I guess one of the anecdotes I use is I later in my career, I would give those kind of brain teasers, and kids would say, do we get extra credit for this? And I would say, no, it's just a fun thing. And they would say, well, forget it. And so I just stopped doing it because nobody was interested in it. Early in my career, I got the uh, the age-old question, why do we need to learn this? And I would talk about why you need it for your future chemistry courses or physics courses or for the next chapter. And kids were pretty receptive to that. And at the end of my career, it was more, is this going to be on the next test? So the focus uh, later in my career really changed to being much more on the outcome than the material and the knowledge and the joy of learning, uh, which I think that that we've gotten so focused on teaching to a very specific curriculum um, and doing well on the next test um, that we've we've lost sight of trying to understand what's what's going on because we're focusing on just getting the right answer. I asked Steve whether he would have become the Microsoft CEO and gone on to be the owner of the LA Clippers and everything else, if not for the influence you had on him in high school. And he said, no, not a chance. What do you think of that? I, I find that incredible. I find that uh, uh, hard to believe. I, I, I wonder what he 
envisions he would have been if not for me. <laughs> if it hadn't been for that, I, 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 I just don't know. Ted Coos, Steve Ballmer's high school math teacher, is retired in the Cleveland area. The changes that Mr. Coos saw in the classroom provide some good context for the rest of our discussion, focused on outcomes. How are students doing? To gauge that, we're going to start with graduation rates. This is an interesting metric. It's a percentage of the 17-year-old population that graduates. So it's a sliver of the population. Graduation rate was 71% back in 1980. It sort of slithered down a little bit to a floor of 67 and a half in 1998, and then rose again to 81.7%. So this is a, an upward trend. This is an upward trend. Uh, we don't know how to assign causality. Why have we seen a, an improvement in graduation rate? I give you lots of reasons. Parents are emphasizing graduation more. Uh, the schools are better able to help kids graduate. Uh, The student-teacher ratio improvement is helping kids learn more. Uh, That's certainly a a possibility. Teacher quality could be going up with teacher pay, but there are other possibilities as well. The standard of graduations could be coming down. I am not an expert, and we haven't figured out a USA Facts kind of by-the-number way to capture graduation standards. And so I think it's also important to look at some of these other factors and then put it all together. Net-net, we can't be sad this number is up, but we better want to know it's for the right reasons as opposed to simply conclude that it's all about student-teacher ratios. Okay, so overall, the graduation percentage of the 17-year-old population in 1980 was 71.4%. It's gone up and down over the years, but recently it's been an upward trend and it's gone to 81.7%. So overall, regardless of what the cause is, we know that the graduation rate has gone up. Right. Now we have to ask what's working, what's not, and try to have a view of what caused this. We can't prove any causality. You you can get economists to do massive studies, and for every economist to tell you it's this reason, you generally can find an economist to tell you it's another reason. On this one, We have some helpful numbers, like student-teacher ratio, spending, et cetera. Uh, But we also have some interesting data on reading and math proficiency, uh, which gives us at least a clue as to whether this may have something to do with the relaxation of standards. Let's look at those test scores overall. What are the key trends that stand out to you in math and reading proficiency scores? Let's start with this number that hits me most. 36% of 8th graders are proficient in reading at grade level. 36% are proficient in reading in the 8th grade. Only 34% of 8th graders can do math with proficiency. If you go back to the 4th grade, 37% of 4th graders, only 37%, can read proficiently at the 4th grade level. And 40% of fourth graders can do math proficiently. So my first observation is, whoa, no matter what we're spending on education, we should have more than 33 to 40% of our kids being able to perform at grade level. 
Just so everybody knows where these numbers are coming from, they're from the National Assessment of Educational Progress, and that's administered to a sampling of students in the 4th, 8th, and 12th grades. So these are not from standardized tests at the state level. In this test, students are rated as either basic, proficient, or advanced based on their scores. So what is proficient? To quote from the test administrators, students performing at or above the proficient level demonstrate solid academic performance and competency over challenging subject matter. Now, there is some good news. These numbers have come up some over the years. We're getting a little bit better, but we're not getting better fast. And where we are today, to me, is wholly unacceptable. We need to help more kids be able to read and do math at grade level. What can people do with these numbers? How can they take these numbers and inform the discussions at their school boards, at the state level? How can education be better informed by the numbers we're talking about here? Well, I do think the first thing this tells you is that we have a lot of work to do to help our kids. The thing it doesn't tell us is causality. And I'm sure there's some discussion amongst teachers as to whether these tests measure what they should and whether teachers are teaching the tests. But at the end of the day, if we have no outcomes that we believe in and we measure, it is really hard to say how our schools are doing. So students, teachers, parents, there needs to be some kind of concurrence on how we're going to assess our kids. Big picture education, as you look at these numbers, Steve, what would you want people to walk away with? And if you were the CEO of a company that had these inputs and outputs, which areas would you focus on? Well, number one, I'd really take to heart the reading and math proficiency scores, and I would double down uh, with the teachers in partnership on ways to make sure we feel like we're we're really focused in on, on outcomes. Not because we're just grading teachers here. We're grading parents, we're grading teachers, we're grading communities, but those numbers need to get better. That's number one. Number two, I would disaggregate those so we can see them by various demographic, uh, you know, rich, poor, uh, you know, people of color, brown and black kids, to see where we have greatest opportunities to make a difference. But until you have those outcomes clear, I think there's, there's not a lot to do. I'd have the frank conversation about class size. I think you could argue classes could be bigger without hurting educational outcomes, which would give us the money to invest in kids who have greater needs. Now, I'm not saying parents are going to want that or not want that, but two or three options like that should be framed up and maybe even taken to the voters or at least to the legislature to try to exercise, if you will, the democratic process to really make these trade-offs. As a voter, I'm never front- confronted with these trade-offs. I'm confronted with how big is the school levy going to be or how much are my taxes are going to be, not really what they're going to be used for nor the outcomes we're going to get. And I think that particularly in education, is an area that citizens can relate to and needs more focused discussion. The democratic process has to work, and it's only going to work if people can look at some numbers, believe in them, and then decide what actions to take. You can see usafacts.org for much more on the numbers that we talked about. And a good starting place for education stats is page 62 
of the 2018 USA Facts Annual Report. That's available as a free PDF at usafacts.org, and you can click through from the charts in that report to the sources of data. All right, we've got one more fun thing before we end the show. The discussion of test scores and eighth grade math proficiency made me wonder, just how hard are these math problems, really? So we tracked down a sample eighth grade problem from the New York State Testing Program, and I gave Steve the problem to solve as a pop quiz. We were backstage last week at the Showbox Concert Hall in Seattle prior to talking on stage to mark the launch of the Numbers Geek podcast. So here is the question. At a local basketball game, all tickets are the same price, and all souvenirs are the same price. Mr. Smith bought two tickets to this basketball game and one souvenir for a total of $17.25. Miss Lockhart bought five tickets to the game and two souvenirs for a total of $42. How much was a ticket to the game? So two times T... Sorry, just going to write it down. 2 times T plus S equals 17.25. And 5 times T plus 2S equals $42. All right, so Steve got you part of the way there, but can you solve the rest? You can also see the problem in writing at geekwire.com slash numbersgeek. The first 10 people who send the correct answer to numbersgeek at geekwire.com will get their very own Numbers Geek shirts. Just include your mailing address and preferred shirt size in men's or women's sizes, and we'll give you the solution on the next episode of Numbers Geek. Once again, if you think you know the answer, send it to numbersgeek at geekwire.com. By the way, in full disclosure, Steve did initially get the answer wrong, but he checked his work and found his mistake. I'm going to blame the lighting. I can almost guarantee it's the first time someone has tried to solve a simultaneous equation in the showbox green room. That was a hint, by the way. Of course, we had to ask Steve the age-old question. Why do we need to know this? Well, at the end of the day, at least for business, have to know how to add, subtract, multiply, divide, do a percentage, and you probably have to do one little piece of math, which is be able to solve a problem where you have A, some number, plus B, some number, times X, some variable, equals Y. In a sense, this you know has some of that form. 2T plus S is kind of like saying 2X plus Y equals 1725. You can figure that out, and it's the shape of a line in algebra. That's a helpful thing to know. Why? Because in business, fixed cost plus variable cost times units equals total cost. Therefore, understanding variable cost and fixed cost is a very important thing uh, in business and understanding your business. Uh, It's a fundamental accounting principle, basically. So, very helpful. I feel blessed that this came naturally to me to some degree and I went to schools where the teachers were very good at teaching this. I think a lot of kids grow up without the good fortune I did. Smart kids, but without the good fortune of their educational background all along the way. And they might have good teachers or less good teachers, 
Uh, and yet, at the end of the day, if they don't have the preparation coming in, almost doesn't matter how good that teacher is, it's going to be tough to get there. And I just feel very fortunate. Before we end the show, I want to invite you to tell us your number. What's the single most important number in your world? It could be from your work, your family, your biggest passion, or maybe even your favorite cause. Why does the number matter to you? To share your number with us, record a 30 to 60 second voice memo on your smartphone, including your name and where you live, and email that audio clip and your contact information to numbersgeek at geekwire.com. And we might just feature it on a future episode. In fact, we've already started receiving some great submissions from Numbers Geek listeners out there, and we'll share some of them in a special bonus episode later this week. They include some of the key numbers behind higher education, which will expand on the themes from today's show. Thanks for listening to Numbers Geek. The reaction to our initial episodes has been really fun to see. And I want to thank everybody out there who has left us a rating and a review in their favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, it's not too late. Also, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app to Numbers Geek if you haven't already. Numbers Geek is produced by GeekWire in partnership with Steve Ballmer and USA Facts. Production and editing by Claire McGrain. Thanks as well to Frank Catalano for his help with this episode. Numbers Geek graphic design by Killer Infographics. Theme music by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. For more Numbers Geek episodes and videos, go to geekwire.com slash numbersgeek. You can also check out interactive graphics, charts, and more details on the data we talk about at usafacts.org. From GeekWire, I'm Todd Bishop. See you next time on Numbers Geek. Numbers Geek.